0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Danielle DiOrlando, who's the curator of audio for Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thank you for having me, Christina. I am so glad that you're here and we get to dive into the world of audiobooks. But before we do that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm the curator of audio at Princeton University Press. Um, I'm responsible for the curation of PUP Audio and our licensing program. Uh, Prior to that, I was an audio rights manager at Yale University Press, where I oversaw their audio initiative and the creation of Yale Press Audio. Um, I have a master's in publishing, which I earned while working full-time at Tantor Audio, which if anyone has the opportunity to work full-time in the industry that they are um, obtaining their advanced degrees I highly recommend it. Yes, it was busy, um, but I was able to be in the classroom and then see it firsthand um, in my working life. So that was a really great opportunity. I work full-time remote in Connecticut. I have um, a dog who you may hear, um, but she is super friendly. So feel free to cheer her on.
0: We will regard all of her contributions as very friendly. Um, when did you know this was the field you wanted to go into?
1: I really, I didn't.
0: Um, my undergrad
1: is uh, in English poli sci, and I really thought that I would go to law school. And when that didn't pan out, I thought, well, now what? I really like books. Um, what else can I do? Um And so I was really looking at, uh, higher education programs, um, with my background in mind, and I stumbled upon publishing and I thought, well, I do love books, but I don't know how to enter the industry as a non-author, uh, professional. So I thought that felt really interesting that I wanted to learn more about and, um, So I entered the publishing program. And at the same time, I just saw an opening at a local audiobook publisher. And it was just kind of this serendipitous moment where I was not an audiobook listener. Um, I did not know that this company existed, let alone so close to my home. And um, it just fell into place. I entered um, Tantor as an editorial assistant. And um, in that capacity, I was taking a manuscript and changing it into a way a narrator would speak. Um, And from there, I moved into contracts and licensing. And I started to work with the publishers in New York and agents and really developed an understanding of the industry. And from there, I learned kind of where I wanted to be within the industry. I knew I loved audio, um, but I really wanted to be closer to the book side of things. When we would go and have meetings with some of the publishers in New York or even the agents, um, they always had just the great backstories to the books and really, you know, these origin stories why this author, why this topic. And I just felt so intrigued, um, that they knew this background to the book that I just had kind of at face value now. Um, so from there, I went to work for Yale and at this point I was working in the contract department, um, based on my experience with contracts at Tantor and, um, was there for a couple of years in the contract role, but again felt that pull to be more on the editorial side to really learn about the books themselves instead of just the title at contract level. Um, and so I, I moved across to editorial and I I picked up on um, the audio uh, initiative and just kind of ran with that. And I really... Um, loved being on the editorial side to get that background um, and work closely with the editors to learn more about their process acquiring the rights and really helped um, to build the way I was pitching the audiobook or uh, the audio rights to audiobook publishers um, and I uh, spearheaded their audio um, licensing program and then, from that, I um, helped to develop the uh, Yale Press Audio, which is their in-house audio program. And, and now I'm at Princeton um, working for um, their audio list, whether it's their licensing initiative or curating Princeton uh, University Press Audio. Um, so it's been a journey, but one that I really just fell into um, and happily so.
0: You mentioned that prior to going into this field, you were not someone who was listening to audiobooks. What were some of the audiobooks you started with? What's converted you into the passion for audio? I have to say that I really was not...
1: Audio was not my main format until the pandemic hit. Um, I was really primarily a print reader. um, And I think having the audio format kind of gave me an escape when we couldn't escape. Um, Everyone was home and I have two small children and my husband is at home working. So it was really an escape to turn on an audio book. Um, Whether I, had, um, you know, chores to do around the house or taking the dog for a walk or even making dinner, turning on the audio book gave me that um, outlet to kind of remove myself from what was going on in the home um, and allowed me to immerse myself in, in reading when I might not have had the opportunity to get that quiet space um, with everyone being home. So I really have to say it was the, the pandemic and everything shutting down, um, that really pushed me into the format, but I, I haven't gone back since things have kind of opened up now. Um, I do still read print, um, and I prefer nonfiction in print, which is funny because I publish nonfiction audio. (laughs) um, and, and I, I I find time to use both formats, um, which I, I think is kind of unique.
0: There's such an important role for audiobooks in higher ed. There's a tremendous reading load on students, on professors, on teaching assistants, and Our eyes can only do so much reading and then they just get tired because we're human beings. And audiobooks are a wonderful way to bring the material in a very accessible format, no matter what your reason is for not being able to handle reading another book. Is there pushback though in higher ed that this isn't actually considered reading? Because to me it is. It is reading.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you, Christina. It's actually something, um, that when somebody hears that I work in audio, in the audio world, they always ask, oh, so do you consider listening to an audiobook reading? And I just, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, not only is it an accessible format, so think of, you know, uh, someone who is, is blind or has, um, vision impairment, telling them that listening to a book doesn't count, that it just isn't so. And I've seen some studies, I can't cite any, I don't know how accurate they are, or how, uh, you know, proven they are, um, that show that brain waves are the same um, when listening to an audiobook versus reading a print book. So someone will have to get back to me on that if there is an official (laughs) approved study that's been done, but I thought that was really interesting to see. Um, and I hope it's true. I think no matter which format you choose to engage with, whether it's print or digital or audio, um, you know, you are, you're cognitively engaged with the material and, and hopefully you walk away, um, you know, the better for it. I think, however, we can get the material out to the intended audience is great. And it's not, it's not a format that is cannibalizing any other format, um, which was a concern when ebooks came on the market. Um, There are audio listeners out there. And if your book is not on audio, um, you're, you're missing that, Area of the the industry. Um, and I think I'm unique in, in the fact that I will listen to an audiobook, and if I love it, I will go buy the print version for my bookshelf so that I can lend it out. Um, and I, I think given back to your question, I think given all of the reading that um, is assigned in the academic world and is expected. I think that audio really lends itself, um, to that demand because I mean, not only can I listen faster than I can read a print book, um, there's just something to be said about being read too. Um, and I think that goes back to, I mean, the oral storytelling tradition, there's, there's something, um, that really connects you with what's being presented um, when when there is that auditory component, um, and I think that we are seeing a turn to the library market, um, which I am I'm, I'm so interested to see how the university press higher education world. Um, responds to that turn. But I think um, economically, people are stepping away from subscriptions, whether it's, you know, TV subscriptions, or audio subscriptions, whatever kind of subscription, I really see a pull away from that kind of monthly payment that everyone is making and everyone is a little bit too far subscribed, if you will, and um, pulling back on that. And I think we'll see a turn to the library market um, as people discover that audiobooks are available in libraries and are, are really easily um, accessed through the library market. Um, so I, th- I think that we will see this um, and that's a consideration when I'm deciding which books um, to produce on audio. Is if if it will be um, impactful for students, if it will be on reading lists. Um, I do see that students are checking to see if a book is on audio.
0: There's something very powerful about being read to, as you mentioned. There's also something very instructive about being read to. I'm thinking of courses I took that were brand new to me. I'd never studied that field at all. Um, and terminology that I'm introduced to in the print form. I don't know how it's pronounced. And there are a lot of us who don't actually know the correct pronunciation of something because we've only seen it written down. And then we find out when we go to class or when we speak to a colleague that we have been saying it inside our head wrong for months, years, and phrases that are from another language, names that are from another country, we, we don't know the pronunciation either. And so there's so much that the audio version can present to us that we're not gonna access in another way.
1: You're so spot on, and that's so funny that you say that. I recently saw something that said, because I read print, I can spell, but because I listen to audio, I can pronounce it.
0: (laughs) I would rather be able to pronounce things correctly than to spell things correctly. I feel like the dictionary can help me figure out with a tangle of letters I put on the page. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But there are so many words, I just don't know how to pronounce correctly. And also having the terms used aloud in those sentences helps us have ease in starting to use them as well. trying a new phrase when you're in a new field can feel really awkward.
1: Absolutely. And this is something that um, the industry is really looking at AI right now and kind of trying to figure out where its place is within the audiobook industry and right now i mean the, the jury is still out um about what this will look like but i think that um my personal opinion um fiction will be really difficult because narrators can kind of um you know, really take on this role and become this character. And there can be, um, inflection and, and tone change if, if the, uh, character is being sarcastic or, um, there's one example where there is, um, the character is telling a joke and realizes that it's, it's falling flat. So they kind of trail off, um, things like that i i don't know how ai would would handle um but something that i think is exciting is maybe the the monograph world the textbook world the the texts that are published um that have a smaller audience that wouldn't necessarily be produced um which is ex- the audiobooks are expensive to produce um and I can see a world where AI might take on those those more um, textbook-like, drier um, creations, which have a need, but maybe more on the niche side of um, an audience. So I think that I think that's something that's really exciting that could affect the university press world dramatically. Um,
0: so when people sell their their manuscript to the press, the audiobook is a subright?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, so many of the uh, the university presses out there now currently have licensing programs, um, and that means that they have all of this IP that comes with a manuscript. Um, They have audio rights. They have film rights. They have first serial rights. There's all of these rights that are entwined in this IP of a a book. And um, there's a lot of university presses out there that utilize this right. And they will license their product, this IP, the book, to an audiobook publisher and, and that is called an, an audio right. Um, there's also Princeton, um, which was the first university press audio publisher. Um, there's the instance where we publish under what's called a primary right. So that's hardcover, paperback, ebook. And now if you publish it under your own publishing house, that's the audio primary right. Um so those are those are two distinctions in the audio publishing world.
0: When they sell the the audio right, then the book needs to be read. And sometimes books are read by the author and sometimes they're read by a a voiceover artist or an actor. Um, as you were talking about textbooks and what you call drier material and how AI could do it. I was thinking, no, those are the books I need read by Samuel L. Jackson and Kate Winslet, please. I need someone who can really read and can make me care in a way I never knew I could about something that, you know, on the page looked really boring, but not when they said it. Um, But um, how does it work when it when it it does go into production and you're deciding, will it be the author? Will it be an actor? Or will it be a voiceover artist?
1: Yeah. Um, so right off the bat, everyone thinks they can read their book. Um, everyone, you know, hasn't a cousin Sue who thinks they have a great radio voice, um, which is great. And on the one hand, you do know your book the best, um, you know how everything should be pronounced. You know um, where you want different parts of um, maybe a lighter tone um, or a more serious tone. You in your mind when you're writing the book, you know how you want it to be read. That being said, it's really challenging to narrate a book. Um, it's multiple days, long hours there's retakes, there's um, breaks within the recording that, um, you know, if your voice starts to strain on day three, you have to, you have to pause, you can't continue with a strained voice that sounds different from the beginning of the book. Um, And now with more people working from Home or working remotely. There's also um, the background. I'm, I'm sure that you in, encounter this with the podcast is, you know, the courier will come to the door and we'll ring the door, uh, we'll ring the doorbell. And then you have to pause and go back and re record that um, as life gets in the way. And there's a lot of things to consider when you think you might want to record your audiobook. Um, There are certain circumstances when it's right for you to record your audiobook. I think memoirs are one uh, category where I love listening to someone tell their own story. Um, There are uh, TED Talk speakers or authors who are known for their voice uh, good or bad, <laughs> and you the audience expects to hear that person, um, those are all great instances. Or if it's a professor who is known for having a dynamic speaking style and, um, you know, their classes are the ones that go quickly, um, those are the people that should definitely consider Recording their own book. And hopefully, whoever is doing the production um, really takes the time to work with them. We've had great experiences at Princeton. Um, We have a really talented production studio, and they are just game to take a first time um, author narrator and work with them if they're the right person to narrate the book. and then on the on the flip side, narrators are, are professional trained actors. Um, they, well, if they've recorded audiobooks before, they know what it entails, they know the lengthy process, they know how challenging it is. Um, so they have those set expectations. But another perk of going with a professional is they have a built-in audience. So if you're if you're an author who you know uh, writes, let's say, in the economic field, and you have someone narrate your book um, who's done a, a wider range of uh, topics, they could bring someone based on their own following. I know I follow certain narrators, and whatever they read, I will listen because I just love the way they speak. Um, and I think that this is this is maybe an undervalued part of having a professional narrator record your book, is is that you could tap into a new audience who you wouldn't necessarily have or wouldn't necessarily find your book because that's not their preferred genre. Um, but because they love this narrator, they will listen and they may become a fan of yours. They may suggest or recommend your book to someone else. Um so I think there is added benefit for having the narrator.
0: Are there books that go straight to audio? You decide not to release a print edition. They're becoming,
1: that's becoming um, something that we consider. Um, Malcolm Gladwell does that a lot. Um, he has his own, um, it's called Pushkin Studios. And they do a lot of really creative things with audio. Um I'm trying to think of the name of one of his books, Bomber or something, um, that was in an audio original, which I think has now become a print edition. Um, but I think that's something that's really interesting. I'm I'm really excited by the creative, um, immersive audio experience and I'm hoping to do more things like that um, with Princeton Audio. I I think it's so interesting to think about and I encourage authors out there to think about how their book will sound as an audiobook when they're writing the book. Um, so often there, there may be some repetitive material, which is key to understanding the text. Um, but as an audiobook, it's just kind of draining to listen to. Um, so I think I think as the audiobook. Changes and becomes a more creative format, which it definitely has the ability to do. Um, I don't know. I would love for authors to consider that when they're writing their manuscript. What will this sound like when somebody's reading it aloud? You don't often think about that because, I mean, outside of children's books, um, there's, I don't know, is there an audience that Uh, is being read to from the print version. I don't know. But um, I think if that's something that they could consider when writing the manuscript, um, that that would be really interesting.
0: It's something we sometimes do in critique groups. You can't read your own work aloud. Someone else has to read the pages you submitted aloud. And that's how everybody absorbs it. And then they give feedback. And it's really interesting how people respond to what they heard out loud and how that informs you when you go to do your your paper rewrites for a paper book. Um, because you're you're becoming aware of how people are receiving your words, and it's also very interesting to hear somebody reading aloud a draft. You kind of sit there cringing, like I can't believe I phrased it that way. I can't believe it sounds like that. So as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about how interesting it would be for people who are trying to finish their dissertations, who are trying to create their first monograph and get it sent off to a press, to listen to more audiobooks to get a real sense of the cadence of language and how it resonates with. Readers.
1: Absolutely. I think um, I know one of the things I've heard just being among the editorial department is, you know, when when you're preparing um, to submit your dissertation, that it shouldn't look like your dissertation. And I just, I could find that so, I don't know, if I was submitting a dissertation, I would feel maybe frustrated by that, maybe confused. What does that mean? It shouldn't look like a dissertation. I just spent all of this w- work and time um, creating this. Um, but I, I can definitely understand how listening to audio might help you with that process of transferring it from a dissertation to a published book um, as it gives that kind of more Trade non scholarly focus um, just based on the types of books that are made into audio. Um, So I I think that's a great idea to listen to more audio books, especially within that discipline. Um, And you can see how the more trade focused books do that and transfer that knowledge.
0: On your end, you have a plethora of books that have already been in print that are that are coming in every day. Manuscripts are being um, acquired. How do you decide amongst all of the blessings of what is Princeton Audio, uh, Princeton Press? What's going to become an audiobook?
1: That's a great question. Um, this is part of my my list curation. Um, it, we rely heavily on what's called launch, which I don't know if the listeners will know what launch is, but um, in the university press world, we tend to have two seasons and, um, you know, a, a spring season and a fall season. And a launch is when the editorial side will launch their books to the rest of the press, um, production, oh. marketing, sales, and oh. They're really communicating um, the books that are, are will be published in that season um, how best to market them, the audience that um, they'll be trying to reach and that these launch meetings that happen twice a year really form my my whole role um, so, in preparation for these twice a year meetings, I will look at, um, what's on the trade list, which is our, our terminology for which books will really have the broader audience. Um, and they tend to fall more non-specialist, um, more of a, a learned reader, um, for the Princeton list. Um, someone who not necessarily has a background in the topic, but who has definitely an engaged interest. Um, From there, there are certain topics that do really well on audio that seem to have a proven audience like history or science, economics. Um, At Princeton, we've found success with some pop philosophy. Um, I always take um, DEI into consideration, Um, author platform, and then previous audio. If the author has uh, a track record on audio and their audience expects their book to be on this format, that's definitely something to consider. Um, And then from there, I kind of figure out which books um, make sense to record. If, If it has a ton of uh, graphs and charts and imagery um, that you really can't understand the text without having those, then that's probably not a great um, option for an audiobook. But some of our audiobooks include a companion PDF, which if you can understand the text, even if we have to tweak the um, the writing a little bit to so that we can. Um, understand the text without necessarily having those images in front of us, um, we can include those kinds of um, illustrations in our companion PDF. So there is options if your book does have that kind of illustration program, um, just so much that it doesn't rely on that illustration program um, is, is a determining factor. And, um, yeah, then it, then it comes down to, um, where we have rights and where we think, um, the, we can best serve the book, whether it's through our own in-house publishing or through licensing it out to a partner.
0: Are there things on the backlist that you have your eye on?
1: Yes. Thank you for asking about that. Um, just this past season, we rolled out about 10 books from the backlist. Um, and I just love that idea. I mean, university presses, Princeton, Yale, we just have this wealth of knowledge um, and we've just been around for so long. So prior to audiobooks becoming a mainstream thing um, are all of these great books that have to find their way to the audio world. Um, I know myself, 10 years ago, looking for an audio book, um, it didn't exist. But did I write that book down? Did I go get the print version? Or did I check back to see if it's been on audio since then? Maybe. Um, But I think that's why it's so important for us to market and promote when we do create a backlist book to let everyone know that this is now available on audio. Um, because you probably didn't write down that book that you wanted to go listen to, but it wasn't on audio. Um, so I think it's it's great to always look at the backlist and what has been successful, um, what has kind of been a sleeper book. Sometimes we'll um, publish a list and we didn't realize that this other book was going to take off. Um, so we do have that, um, opportunity to really kind of have that self, uh, reflection where we look back even just a season and say, oh, that really took off and we weren't expecting it. And, um, put that audio edition out closer to publication instead of the simultaneous publication that we're always hoping for. Um, and then just really promote and and let everyone know that it's out there um, because we know that there is an audio audience um, who is waiting for that book on this format.
0: As we expand audio, we expand accessibility. How are other university presses jumping on the audio bandwagon or are they watching and waiting to see how you all do first (laughs) (laughs) um
1: well i definitely receive a lot of questions um i think that the university press world generally is realizing that this is a format where you know they can expand another source of revenue. Um, the audience is out there and eager for this material. It's just a matter of connecting the dots and getting it out there. Um, So there's a little bit of internal review where you have to see what material you have, um, what's sold really well, where do you have the rights? Um, And then from there, it's deciding, is this something that we want to take in-house. And um, and that doesn't necessarily mean creating a recording booth and hiring a producer and doing all of that. There are plenty of um, talented production studios out there that will take all of that on for you. Um, and um, I'm trying to think about the your initial question. (laughs) Um, but then there's also the licensing aspect of it. Um, so maybe they decide that, okay, yes, we have a few books, not, um, maybe maybe they, they have a very small list, modestly sized list, and they have a handful of books that they'd like to put on audio. Well, maybe contracting with a production studio isn't the best bet. Um, maybe it's best to license in which you would contact one of the several audiobook publishers that are out there and figure out which audiobook publisher is right for you, right for this book, right for your audience, Um, and and putting it out in the world that way. And that's totally fine. That's a a totally legitimate way of getting your work out into the world. Um, There's a reason that a lot of university presses don't create their own publishing arm. It's expensive. There's, um, you have to have dedicated personnel to do this. Um, You know, and there are university presses out there that are five people. Um, So it's definitely an investment. Um, But if you're a small house, whether university or otherwise, you can definitely have an audio program. And I I just highly encourage any publisher out there that is listening or even authors, contact your publishers um, and see what what you can do to get more audio out there. The audience is there. The audio industry has been growing by double digits for the last 10 years. The audience is definitely there. Um, It's just a little bit of work to figure out the best way to get your material out there and, and figure out who your partners are.
0: That is going to be my next question: Was can authors reach out to their former editor or, or their their publishing house and say, you know, I think my work would be great for the audio world, and here's why.
1: Absolutely,
0: absolutely.
1: So often, you know, now we're starting to look at backlist publishing, um, and I think across the board, um, people are are always looking at their backlist, trying to um figure out how to utilize that IP, how to do more for their authors. Um, but that being said, we're usually you know, a handful of people. Um, and it's 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 hard to look backwards. So if you are an author who has a previous, previously published book and you think that it would make a great audio, and you're open to someone else reading it, If you are open to um, licensing it and not necessarily having it under your um, publisher's handle, then absolutely go, go to your editor if you can't find a rights person on their website and just inquire. I mean, it can't hurt, right? Everybody... Is interested to get their IP out there and their material out to as many people as possible. And if your publisher doesn't have a specific audio person, that doesn't mean that they can't make audio contacts or someone at the publisher can't make audio contacts. Um, if the publisher decides that that's a right avenue for them, it's always worth asking. Um, but if they if they don't have an obvious rights person, I would definitely suggest starting with an editor, and an editor editor could always. Put them in touch with whomever um, they think might be responsible for setting that up.
0: One thing I like to ask the editors I get a chance to speak with is what's a day like at your job?
1: <laughs> that's a really good question. I, um, I have to say my day-to-day varies greatly, um, but I do have a standard cycle that's kind of set by this launch um, meeting that I've talked about Um, prior to that meeting. I am researching the lists um, within an inch of its life and um, reviewing uh, draft manuscripts at that point and really figuring out which titles um, I want to publish under PUP's list or which titles would be best served outside by um, a larger audiobook publisher. and then after that, I, I really kind of become a project manager <laughs> in the sense that I work with the authors and our production company to make sure everyone is on board with narrators and has the right materials they need and the final manuscript and just staying on track to make the simultaneous publication. What that means is the audiobook comes out, publishes at the same time as the hardcover and ebook. Um in between these launches, I'm working with our production studio on casting. And um, if we do have author narrators, making sure they have a studio um, and making sure that uh, so our production house is um, in the UK. And if we have an author that lives in California, um, that that takes some coordination Um and, and with the different time zones, but it works out. Um, and so just making sure that the, the publication isn't affected by the selected narrator, whether it's a different narrator or an author. Um, I'm working with our publicity and marketing teams to find unique angles uh, to promote the audio edition specifically. And I, I implore authors that are listening to definitely mention if your book is available on audio so yeah that given audio audience um, is alerted to that um, I work on reviewing our different distribution channels and promotions within those channels and then i'm i'm create I'm thinking creatively about new channels or new partners that are out there as this audio industry is just developing like crazy and all different um, products are coming on the market. So I'm I'm always reviewing those. Um, And I started this year to work with the Audio Publishers Association to really stay in tune with the industry. Um, And that's kind of what my, I don't want to say day-to-day is, but my my overall cycle, (laughs) Um, preparing a curation list and then seeing that through and getting ready for the next list.
0: We've covered quite a lot about your job, but I'm guessing there are some misconceptions people have about your job or about the audio world or about the place of audiobooks. We have a few minutes left. Would you like to clear up any misconceptions, share any pet peeves, answer any uh, questions that you get commonly asked? What would you like us to know that we don't know right now?
1: Hmm. I think that, I think we touched on the common misconception that audio listening is not reading, um, which I, I definitely think it is. I definitely think um, there's some misconception Um about, you know, an audio version cannibalizing the print sales, which again, isn't true. There's there's a market out there um, for audio listeners. And people that listen to audiobooks might not necessarily pick up your print edition or your digital edition. So I think we can kind of look to ebooks um, as that more mature format that we thought would totally disrupt the print industry. And um, print was dead when ebook first came out. Um, And, you know, audio is not new, but I think that we can look to ebook in that sense that um, it's not there to cannibalize. You will still see your print sales. You will just see an increase in an audience participation um, based on this, this other format that's available to them.
0: What would you like to see going forward?
1: I would love to see. um, hmm, This is a good question. I would love to see more people trying audio that. And then have a more open mind to the format. Um, Like I said, I was not a primary audio listener, until recently. And and I've really made significant gains in how much reading I've been able to get done because I'm listening um, when I wouldn't necessarily have time to sit and sit with a print book. Um, and I've just found that so beneficial. And we listen to audiobooks in the car when we're on a road trip. Um, my kids love audiobooks. They love... You know, I think the kids market is is a market that's um, difficult for audio. One, you, you have to market parents instead. Of, you can't market the children themselves, really. Um, so I think getting the message out there that listening to an audiobook does count as reading. Um, I think that would help and, and anything that gets children interested in reading in whatever way I think is beneficial. Um, and yeah, I think just giving, giving audio a try. I mean, I've personally found that I'm a better fiction listener than I am a nonfiction listener. Um, I found that I need to speed up the, the rate that the narrator is speaking, which don't tell our production house that I do that, but, (laughs) um, I find that it's, it's easier for me to listen. It's more enjoyable for me to listen if it's at a a little bit of a higher speed. Um, so there, there's various things that you can do with an audio book, um, that could change your mind. Maybe it's the genre that you're listening to. Maybe it's the space you're listening in. Go for a walk, walk your pet. Um, listen when you are making dinner, listen when you have the print book in front of you, um, just try different things, and you might you might find something that works for you.
0: And it sounds like there's more ways for high schools, community colleges, colleges and graduate schools to incorporate audiobooks, particularly ones that are written at a higher reading level than maybe their students would feel comfortable with, into the classroom as well as into the syllabus.
1: Absolutely. I really think that's the case. I mean, um, not to sound like kids today, but (laughs) kids today, um, they have so many platforms that are available to them that is pure entertainment, whether it's TikTok or um, the various gaming devices or all of the TV content that's out there. They're used to being entertained. So, I mean, my son right now, he's nine and he struggles to find a book that's entertaining for him. Um, and once he does find a series that he loves, he digs in. Um, but I think that other books are more challenging for children who are are just learning how to read. If you think of Harry Potter, I read Harry Potter to him before he learned how to read. And there's a lot of accents, and there's a lot of um, Hagrid speak um that's difficult for a learning reader um so I think listening to the audiobook of that turns them on to the book itself and then they kind of have that um springboard if you will maybe they don't listen to all of the audiobooks that are in that series um but they start with one and they get a feel for what it sounds like and it is entertaining and um all of the the actors that go into the different characters um they kind, they kind of you know take on a life of their own and then you take that with you going forward to the other books that you might pick up in print what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners a curiosity i've i found real, real joy with this format um that I really just stumbled into and appear to be continuing to stumble through (laughs) my journey with audio. Um, And I'm just always discovering new things about this format um, that brings me joy. And I think as the audio format develops and there's more immersive audio, um, there's a really, there's really a level of excitement out there that I think is going to be great for the market. And, 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 the audio listener will just benefit from. And anyone willing to experiment um, and stay curious will really gain from it.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Danielle DiOrlando, and telling us about your role as curator of audio at Princeton University Press and about the future of audiobooks for higher ed. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.